New York City is known for its museums. There's the Guggenheim, the MoMA, the Whitney. But in a way, the city itself is a museum, with public art projects spread across all five boroughs. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we'll learn the history behind the city's community murals, an art movement that dates back 40 years. Also today, New York After Dark. A night photographer shares her vision of the city. And what's that lurking around the corner? Monsters as public art. That and more coming up on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. The artwork at the MoMA or the Met is not exactly in hiding. It's on public display. So why wouldn't it be considered public art? To answer that question, Cityscape's Andrew Hirschman visited public sculptor Tom Otterness at his studios in Brooklyn. Otterness has created sculptures that are in the city's museums, but are also prominent fixtures of school playgrounds, subway platforms, and hospitals. The difference between doing museum work and gallery work is who you think of as your client. I think we all work for someone, whether that be art history or art historian or museums in the back of our minds. If you're going to address a public that doesn't have a, an art history background, uh, you have to speak a very simple language uh, or a language that's understood, a common language. You can say sophisticated things with it, but it should be a language that everybody understands. I really started doing public work using two-dimensional figures, and they were based on international science symbols like bathroom figures, very simplest, simplified, universal symbols of people or images and what I did was just pop them into 3D and and so my figures look like smiley face buttonhead people that are sort of dressed in different uh, costumes indicating the class of person that they are and really my my favorite project and uh, that I've ever done is really the 14th Street subway station the 8th Avenue line the uh, um, a E L, all the, the huge station that uh, where all these trains connect in New York, and it's become my most well-known piece. I think they say thirty thousand people an hour go through in rush hours, so it's just this enormous turnover. And whenever I meet somebody that doesn't know anything about art, and I want to tell them what I do, I say, "Oh, do you know the Fourteenth Street station?" Do you know the alligator coming out of the sewer eating a guy with a money bag head? You know, and they go, is that you? You know, so many people know it here in New York. And so when that first, that project first started, it was an open competition. It was, um, as all of these public art projects are, I don't know, they may have had 800 entries or more, and they narrow it down to four or five finalists, and we do proposal drawings um, or models, whatever you think can sell the project. And I went around doing studies of telephones, of how people hung out, and I dug in and did research into early build, the early building of the subways in the 1880s, got photos from that. And then I stumbled onto Thomas Nast, who uh, was a political cartoonist during Tammany Hall and all the corruption there. And I saw those images, and I said, oh, geez, things haven't changed all that much. You know, I can go straight at this. You know, he had the, the original draw, drawings. His cartoons incorporated moneybag heads, businessmen, and corrupt politicians, and cops, and, you know, it had everything in it. 
that became a big source for me. Now, when Thomas Noss was uh, drawing his cartoons for a newspaper, that's a, that was a private enterprise, but uh, Subway is funded by public funds. Um, are, are these political undertones, do you have to tone them down when you deal with officials? Um, is, is, are these a concern? There's always a negotiation that goes on between public officials and, and what I'm proposing. In this case, I think the humor helps a lot, it, as it did with NAST. You know, everybody thinks it's fairly funny, and, and it's not particular to one politician, so it's, it could be Democrats, it could be Republicans, it could be anybody um, that, it's, that it's modeling for corruption. I would say the... I, I'm never sure where I'm going to run into problem in a public art project. I almost always run into some problem. I'll push the envelope until somebody says, ouch. Most people won't know who I am. Many people know what the sculpture is, but they won't know my name. And that there's one plaque in a in a station that could be uh, four blocks long. I think there's a special attachment they feel when maybe eventually they find my name, and then that becomes something really important. It's like finding out who the Lone Ranger is. Do you go back then to check out your artworks and see how they're being used and directed yeah, with? Yeah, I go all the time. I'll, I'll go to 14th Street. If I'm feeling bummed out, I, really, I, if I'm f in, in, feeling depressed, I go take a transfer over to 14th Street and I get out and look around and something's always going on. Somebody's looking, somebody's scratching their head. And I... I take five minutes, I look around and I think, well, what's my problem? You know, this is, this is great. What, what's my, I feel much better and I get back on the subway and I go on my way. And I can watch or I can have conversations with people and, and they'll tell me what they really think, you know, at least until I tell them I'm the artist. <laughs> and it's not something you get in the art world. You get people holding champagne glasses going very interesting, you know? <laughs> Tom Otterness is a public sculptor from Brooklyn. He spoke to Cityscape's Andrew Hirschman. Since the late 1960s, New York City walls have served as canvases. Collaborations between neighborhood groups and artists have led to the creation of community murals that celebrate, educate, and protest. Janet braun Reinitz and Jane Weissman are the authors of On the Wall, Four Decades of Community Murals in New York City. Jane joins us now in the studio. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, George. What prompted you to get involved with this book? It's an interesting story. We really need to go back to 1987 when Jenna and I met. I was running Green Thumb, the city's community gardening program, and we were putting murals and sculptures in the gardens. And Janet submitted a proposal for an artist in the gardens mural and won it. And so in 1987, when we became friends, we had the opportunity to see murals that had been around since the early 1970s and saw that those were disappearing. And as time went on, we became involved in the community mural organization Art Makers, and we saw that even newer murals were disappearing. So Janet came to me and said, Jane, this book needs to be written. We've done projects together. I can't do this on my own. Will you join up with me? And I said, yes. Six, seven years later, a book is published. Now, why are these murals disappearing? Murals are an ephemeral art form. They are victims to weather, sun, wind, and rain. They are victims to bad walls. A wall springs a leak. 
and a wall needs to be repaired, so a mural gets whitewashed. Murals are subject to controversy sometimes, so murals sometimes do get whitewashed. Also, a building will go up to cover a mural, or a building is taken down and a mural is destroyed that way. Do we know which one was first in New York City? I think if we look at the first organized community mural in New York City, it would be in Harlem, which is really against perceived wisdom. But when we go back down to the Lower East Side, that really was the nexus of the earliest murals in New York City that most people associate. And they were very strong. The imagery was very powerful. There was money for murals at the time. Is money hard to come by these days? It's been hard to come by since the late 1970s. In the 80s, Money came from local development corporations, which changed the nature of murals from being very political with strong imagery, lots of raised fists in the air, octopuses, chains broken, closed, flames, lots of flames. These corporations wanted murals that beautified a neighborhood. They didn't want anything controversial. Do you view that as a form of censorship? No, they were the client. But... What we got during this period were some of the wittiest, most beautiful murals that New York has ever produced. Example? Human Support by Kit Saylor. Here you are walking under an overpass of the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and all of a sudden you see two huge human figures, naked, muscular, beautiful, Michelangelo-esque, holding up the highway. And between them, you see a landscape. And then you notice along the cornice, a little crack, which in a sense shows or indicates that perhaps New York City infrastructure, it's not quite as strong as we would all like to believe it is. I love how you describe community murals in the book. You say that community murals are a window to the unwritten history of a neighborhood. We say that because murals express local community concerns. They're about housing, education, health care, issues that are important to a neighborhood at a specific time. You can look at a mural and you have an idea of when it was painted, oftentimes, or you may look at a mural and not have a clue what its meaning is, but yet you sense the power that it has. There is a mural on West 46th Street, Arnold Belkin's Against Domestic Colonialism. It's still there. It was painted in 1973. It needs to be restored because both the lower bottom, which was really looked like Frank Stella paintings, it was those protractor kind of shapes, and some of the top have been have disappeared because of wall repairs. But there's a lot of signage that says not power to the people, but people want to be involved in community participation. You see bulldozers. There isn't, the title is not on the wall. So you wouldn't really know what this mural is about specifically. But when you see protesters and you see bulldozers, you get a sense that something was happening in this neighborhood at that time that this mural is addressing. After the 9-11 attacks, we saw numerous community murals pop up all across New York City. What do you think it was about that event in particular 
that sparked such an outpouring of these murals? Well, people needed to express themselves after 9-11. What was interesting to us was the form of expression and then how that expression changed over time. In the beginning, there was feelings of great patriotism. So you saw lots of flags, lots of statues of liberty. Perhaps one of the most affecting murals is Celebrate the Angels Around Us Every Day by Willard Whitlock out in Crown Heights, which was a beautiful angel, almost like an angel of mercy that you see in Italian Renaissance painting with um, her wings spread wide, like the Madonna has her cape spread wide. And underneath were figures representing the different forces, the police, the firemen, the other auxiliary services that helped in the rescue and recovery during 9-11. And then about a year or so later, things began to change. And after the U.S. invaded Iraq, the murals got more testy and there were anti-war murals, which we hadn't seen in a very, very long time. There weren't many of them, but murals began to take on a more critical tone of American policy. One group in Brooklyn, Los Muralistas de El Puente, has done incredible work over the years, and its 2005 mural called Bushwhacked, B-U-S-H, really is quite an indictment of the environmental policies of the Bush administration. Extremely funny mural, very comic book cartoonish in in content, but there are enough words and double entendres, you know, where you have the president writing a Hummer, which is called a Dumber, some fat kid drinking out of a McDiabetes cup, and frogs with terrible warts and, and things growing out of its body, which, which represents the, the real harm to the environment that has happened from many of these policies. That mural, in many ways, going back to the roots of community murals as political statements. That's right. That's right. You have preserved, what, some 150 murals in this book? By photograph. We also have preserved for history uh, at least 500 murals in what we call our muralography, which is a listing at the back of the book of all the community murals we have been able to identify. There may be more out there. We're hoping people will say, but you didn't include. And that was the reason for writing this book. Murals were disappearing. And what we were concerned about was not only were murals disappearing physically, but soon the murals would disappear from our collective memory as well. And we could not let that happen. Jane Weissman, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a real pleasure, George. Thank you. Jane Weissman is the co-author of On the Wall, Four Decades of Community Murals in New York City. It's out now from University Press of Mississippi. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Not all art is just a feast for the eyes. This summer, visitors to Central Park can enjoy a sonic collage composed by John Morton that's featured in a certain special pedestrian tunnel. WFUV's Mary Wilson took a trip to Central Park to have a listen. 
The sound tunnel is an unassuming walkway that runs just next to the children's zoo. John Morton composed the soundtrack that plays from speakers strapped to the tunnel's stone wall. Parks Commissioner Adrian Benepe says the sound show features the sonic landscape of Central Park. The 20-minute show plays every half hour. All the while, there is a near-constant stream of foot traffic. Mothers pushing strollers, European tourists wearing strange shoes, men in suits. As people walk through the tunnel, they walk through the sounds of an entire park. Chimes. A Little League baseball game. Gospel hymns. and lawn sprinklers. The tunnel speakers provide a canvas of sound, and the din from the people passing through becomes just another layer of paint. And just like that, the artistry is shared. Public art. The sweet sounds of Central Park. We often see people snapping pictures of Central Park during the day, but photographer Lynn Seville is drawn to the urban oasis at night. Some of her photographs of the park are included in a new book called Night Shift. Lynn is with us now to talk about her work. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning. You are well known for your nighttime photography. Why do you have such an affinity for the night? I think it all started when I grew up in North Carolina. I would look out the back windows of my family's house into the backyard and the shadows created by the one porch light. And at night, I was totally fascinated with the way the light and shadow looked. It made it seem so spooky and mysterious and kind of appealing. And during the day, the same yard I had played with my brother in it seemed kind of very ordinary. And so I was really captivated by that. How different at night do you see New York City than you see it in the daytime? Very different. Um, I feel like the city's more my own, especially in certain areas when I'm walking around. I, I love the crowds and the hustle bustle of every day. But at night, I find it very appealing to find sort of solitary walks, kind of like a flanner. I love to peer into the parks and see the sort of scary feeling I had looking out the back window of my house in North Carolina. And there's a lot less light, of course. And so it's sort of the streetlights single out certain areas. And so you have a kind of a pattern of light and shadow and the trees can be just gorgeous. And they vary, of course, during the different times of year. But I love the feeling of the night and kind of just those the waning daylight, which becomes intensely blue, especially at twilight, and and how it kind of is um, a counterpoint to the street lights and door lights that you see. You like to photograph what you call underloved and overlooked places in New York City. Yes. Well, my prior project was in black and white, and there I explored the city's iconic structures a lot more, like I would go hang out at Grand Central Station and wait for everything to be just right, and I was kind of inspired by the modernists and um, loved this feeling of the big, powerful kind of macho city and kind of lyrical also. And in black and white, it was just beautiful. And when I finished that book, which was called Acquainted with the Night, published by Rizzoli in 1997, I was seeking sort of a new direction. And I tried a whole lot of different things and then moved toward the color. And in the color, I found myself moving farther away from the center of the city 
there's certain parts of Queens and Brooklyn and, and the Bronx where, you know, people just are on their way to work or something, and there's nothing really famous about them. And I find some of those places hauntingly beautiful. I also feel a little bit um, an urgency to beat the wrecking ball, you know, because there has been, up till the, this recession time, there's been a lot of development in the urban area. The certain places seem to be kind of suddenly demolished, and then some beautiful big building is built there instead, but you kind of miss this, these sort of um, textures and imprints from the past. That's what I'm trying to photograph. Is there a place that you've captured on film that is now gone? Yes, the meatpacking district. But I can't say that I'm totally depressed about it because the High Line, which has just been opened, is just utterly beautiful. I think they did a tremendous job on that. And I agree. So I like that a lot. But I did used to haunt underneath there and take a lot of photographs. And it was funny, I, I teach a class at International Center of Photography, and I was down under there taking pictures with my class, and a fellow rode by on his bicycle, and he said, you've missed this by 10 years. <laughs> so those places I find really interesting to watch change. You know, I mean, there's certainly beautiful things now, but as it's progressed, it's been really fascinating to see sort of the palimpsest of the past. Most of your photographs are void of people, but some of them do include people in a very mysterious way, however. Tell us how you capture that. It all started when I was really trying to take pictures absolutely with no people. I mean, if there was anybody with me, they would have to be out of the picture. And once in a while, as I've been photographing, you know, someone would walk by and I would think, oh, that's too bad. You know, they've wrecked my picture. But sometimes I go home and that was the best picture. So I started welcoming these uninvited guests into my pictures. And I'm trying to explore that a little bit more now. I think the introduction of um, some shadowy figures on the edges and different parts of the picture has been an, um, a progression in my work. There's one photograph in your new book, Night Shift. It's of a building, and there's a woman in a dress standing in a doorway, and it's absolutely fantastic. Tell us about that photograph. I, I'm glad you pointed that out. I call it number 39. It's on. It's in Dumbo on Pearl Street, and I was taking pictures of this beautiful doorway because it has this very old number that says 39. And in the middle of the exposure, this woman just walked into the picture and didn't even pay me any mind. I was only 10 feet away and unlocked the door and went in the building. And I got home, and it was way better than the one without it. But there's another funny thing about that. And I'm curating a show for the Brooklyn Public Library about couples. It's called Partners in Life and Art. And as part of the show, I'm just including all the work of these artists, but I'm, I was asked to take portraits of each of the artists, couples, and the first one said, oh, come to our studio. We're at 39 Pearl Street. It huh. was that building, and I had this funniest feeling knocking on the door and going into that building. I've entered into the world of number 39. There you go. That's so eerie. It's also eerie to me because the woman in that photograph almost seems ghost-like because yeah. the dress looks like it's period to the 1950s or something. Yeah. I know. I, she's even better than central casting could have done. So, yeah, I was really happy she was there. And I asked the people in the, that I photographed if they knew her, and they don't. So maybe she was a ghost. Talking about eerie, the photographs that you've taken in Central Park of the pond there are very yeah. eerie to me. I've never seen the pond in that way. I'm glad you asked about that one. Uh, what interests me is that um, the city is constantly changing. It 
looks like you could go back and reshoot that picture because I've thought a couple of times to try to reshoot it with a bigger format camera. It's never really exactly the same. I mean, there just happened to be that mist there and everything was kind of, as they say, the stars were lined up for that particular photo. That location is right in front of the plaza. It used to be the Plaza Hotel. And so it's very, very common to see this place, but it looked just kind of different. And that's what I'm looking for is these kind of moments where the city becomes something else, kind of a surprising moment. Lynn Seville, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, George. Lynn Seville is a photographer here in New York City. Her latest book, Night Shift, is published by the Monticelli Press. Her work is also on exhibit at the Yancey Richardson Gallery at 535 West 22nd Street in Manhattan through August 28th. I was walking through the woods the other day Then I heard a scary word And I looked behind me, who'd I see? Ooh, I saw a monster a monster so I ran and ran and ran and ran and ran and ran away I ran and ran and ran and ran and ran and ran away Monsters typically lurk in dark places under the bed or in the closet but Brooklyn artist Kylan O'Brien is allowing them to see the light of day she's working with public school children to paint giant monsters on walls in the city her work is also featured in a new exhibit at the Open Source Gallery in Brooklyn, where I caught up with her earlier this week. The Monster Project is uh, basically where I take children's drawings of monsters and mural them in their neighborhoods. Here is a great example lurking behind your shoulder here. Tell us about this creature. Um, this is a creature that the child who did him, his name was Jack, called the, the monster in NYC. I, I tend to call him green, mean, and, and ugly. The idea is actually is for them to be roaming the city and especially the neighborhoods where the kids live because once they go on the walls, we call them guardians. And, um, you know, it's more poignant really for the children if they're sort of walking by and living with them. They're part of the city. They're, they're part of the sort of natural vibrancy of um, just so much that's going on around these kids that they may or may not understand. And surprisingly enough for the adults, I mean, as their public art, and especially while I'm working on them, I'm getting lots of feedback uh, I think there's plenty that we don't understand, and there's a lot that's going on around us. So they also sort of enjoy this just kind of crazy thing that's going up on the wall, and now it's going to live and, and breathe to some degree um, on the street. And actually, to, I, I prefer them on the street. I'd never done them inside in the gallery before, and uh, I like them out. They should be out and running around like the wild things that, uh, that they are. How did you conceive of this project in the first place? I have a daughter and uh, a live-work studio and um one day you know sort of writing my you know the dreaded artist statement and i used to live in california and the transition for the work um has been quite extreme but there's this theme running through it all of these creatures in the land and the landscape and i almost wasn't even aware of them and i would placate my daughter and her friends by giving them the forbidden sharpie pens and letting them draw on my canvases before i would paint on them just with the sort of this is all going to disappear, kind of forewarning. They didn't care. They'd be at it for hours. And what they were doing was so fresh and so good. And I, you know, discovered that I had this, um, this fascination with creatures. So I asked them to draw monsters and to see what was going to happen. And again, it was just, they were so good. I had to leave them in my pictures. I started doing collaborative paintings. And then they were so good, I wanted to see them 80 feet long and 20 feet high out in the city, you know, uh, kind of, I guess, where I feel like they belong. 
Do you notice a transformation in the kids after they see their monsters, their visions of their monsters on a wall, that they feel a little safer, a little less scared, anything like that? I don't know about that. Um, I do believe that what they feel is, is an enlivening empowerment. I think they feel like that they maybe they don't need to be as afraid of their own power, and, and they definitely feel... Um, and just the intensity of, of being part of a public art project in their neighborhood, how big a deal that is when they're so little, and yet, again, a validation um, that their work is, uh, is important, that their voice is important. I think that's very, uh, really the word was, is empowering. Is it your hope to have monsters in all five boroughs? It is. In fact, um, as long as I think I can, I can manage to do the project, I'd like to do them all over the place. I'd love to travel the world. I'd love to see what children in other countries, what their monsters look like, you know, because you know, you know they're just going to be, they're going to be as different as cultures are different. Um, and that, that fascinates me. As an artist, are you taking any liberty with the kids' drawings, or is it exactly as they put it down? I do take small liberties with them. Um, I do refine the pictures a little bit, again, because I do feel a responsibility as their public art. Um, I can't just slap some color on the wall. And also, I'm, a, I'm an artist, so I, I, I really can't help myself. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, they're very, they're very true to the kids' drawings. Yeah, just you know, way, way bigger. Kylan, thanks so much. Have a great day, George. Brooklyn artist Kylan O'Brien paints monsters on city walls. Her work is also on display at the Open Source Gallery in Brooklyn. For more information, check out themonsterproject.net. I was working in the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight When my monster from its slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the monster mash and that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Mary Wilson, Andrew Hirschman, and Laura Zifang. Have a great weekend.